On this season, we'll be covering our vehicles of hysteria, how pop culture and the media shape our psychology and society, and how our national mythologies manipulate the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. I happen to be selected to be God. To me, he's God, and he's God to the whole wide world. If people would just recognize it, I am the chosen one. If Jesus Christ gets down off the cross, I would tell him, hold on a second. I need to check with the president if it's true. Maybe you've passed through a time in your life where you felt lost, rendered hopeless by the state of your life or the state of the world at large, untethered from a belief structure that gives you that vital foundation to stand on. Maybe you've given in and watched a New Age influencer online promising a personal, social, financial, or political utopia, sometimes claiming to speak either directly for God or inhabited by some all-knowing alien spirit with perfect knowledge of the universe. Maybe you've watched people you love disappear into the alternate reality of an authoritarian commander-in-chief 100% committed, not to any particular cause, really, but to the whims and the ego of the man himself. Most likely, though, you've seen right through most of these charlatans and thought, that dude is supremely gross, or that woman is bonked out beyond beyond. Why would anyone listen to the bizarre things they have to say? To be clear, when we're talking about the charismatic leader, we're not talking about charisma in the way that we traditionally think of it. We're looking at the work of sociologist Matt Weber, who defined charismatic leaders as figureheads offering absolute confidence in their vision, someone who tells you that they alone can show you the way to whatever heaven they're slinging. Instead of the heavy hitter cult leaders that we hear about time and time again, we'll look at some of the lesser known examples who nonetheless changed our culture dramatically. Through the great awakenings of American history, we'll see how changing ideas about spirituality opened up more and more space for hundreds of second comings of God in all his changing forms. Sometimes these leaders can offer visions of communalism and equality, or visions of doomsday and law and order and often all of the above. Regardless of the philosophies of these charismatic leaders, the most extreme cases almost always fall into a psychological category we hear about all the time now narcissistic personality disorder. We'll look at the necessary symbiotic relationship that forms through a collective of followers and see how they all work together unknowingly to cover the early psychological wounds of the leader by spinning a fantastical story about their own perfection and thus the perfect world that they alone can create. And that's what... Where am I getting it from? Yeah. I have a photographic memory. I mean, a lot of information happens. (laughs) This is the problem with you and me. Okay. If you have the access that I have to universal consciousness, I can pull information like you'd never believe. If you're tapped into the Akashic Records, you have access to all kinds of information, leagues and leagues worth of information that most people would have to go to school for years and years to understand. I can download it. 
Teal Swan is an incredibly popular online influencer, a pathologically new age, sultry, selfie-obsessed life coach and entrepreneur of health and beauty products, who just so happens to also be an Arturian, multidimensional, alien capable of x-ray vision and clairvoyant predictions. Born in New Mexico in 1986, Swan would grow up in a heavily Mormon area in Utah, and she speaks of a youth where she just didn't fit in due to her unorthodox approach to spirituality and apparent special abilities. She's claimed, essentially, that she's part of an organization of intergalactic aliens working in tandem to save the world, a sort of Greenpeace thing, and that she was specifically designed to be hot in order to get more people to pay attention. She offers products like the Blu-ray self-love onesie, financial freedom duvet cover, high heels with her paintings on them that are supposed to raise vibrational frequencies with names like self-esteem matrix, manifestation lightwork model, human intimacy, and elucidate me. But when you hear Teal Swan speak, she doesn't immediately go to some of the wackier parts of her philosophy, but instead she comes off as well-spoken and down to earth. She doesn't have the tone of a preacher but instead a kind of therapist. Claiming to have been sewn into a Mormon corpse and left for 12 hours, Teal Swan has said in interviews that she was dealing with a slew of memories of horrific satanic tortures that occurred all her childhood and teen years in order to get rid of her extrasensory abilities. In 2005, she began exploring this experience with help from a therapist named Barbara Snow, a key figure who was working with children during the satanic panic of the 1980s. This story creates a kind of mythic trauma past for Teal Swan, which is perfect for our time. Because if she can get through the worst shit you've ever heard, and I mean you need to look this stuff up because I'm not going to talk about it, well then she may know the psychological path to personal salvation better than anyone. For the last 60 years, much of our culture has been moving away from the strictly Christian framework of our new religious movements, or cults as they're more controversially called, that have marked American history from the Puritans up to the present day. We've begun instead to worship psychotherapy, for better or for worse, using it as another kind of divination of self-exploration. If the answer to our pain is in our past, then the answers are inside us. We can build our very own heaven within and then use it to fix the rest of the world. This idea is not new, however, but instead a story that's taken many forms since the first Puritan doctrines were rejected by eccentric and radical Christian leaders. But at the same time, it's also true that many of the ideas that Swan promotes can be useful, albeit recycled from Eastern philosophy and psychotherapy, like most things spiritual are now, because internal exploration often leads to personal epiphanies, ones that in a sense do elevate your spirit to a higher level, healing a part of the self in order to move forward in a healthier and more conscious way that just feels better. And when you join a group like this, one believing themselves to be dedicated to a better self and thus a better world, you feel connected to them through intense vulnerability that comes with telling your truth and being accepted 
and then made to feel special, chosen, that you have the secret knowledge of the universe, that you know the real truth, and that you can save the whole fucking world with it. Though new religious movements and cults and their charismatic leaders have existed and do exist in cultures all over time and geography, America has always been special, seen early on as a refuge for religious radicals of all kinds. You could say that the Puritans came here as a kind of cult, that is, a sect too radical and too weird to stick around in what they saw as an increasingly sinful England. They were a group that believed themselves to be the superior chosen people that were following the light of Jesus that was always fixed far away like the lights of the city upon the hill, a heaven, a fixed star in the sky. And that was the point. Heaven was far away, a place inaccessible to human beings, and a place that you couldn't even get into by acts of your own character or charity. Nope. The Puritans were fervent believers in Calvinism, which meant that the elect were chosen before birth, and there's literally nothing anyone can do to change the course of their fate, or they will land in either heaven or hell. You could try to prove your chosenness through what you did and the piety you postured, but the soul's future was a great and unnerving unknown. Within colonized America's first 100 or so constant trudging and painful years, the National Congregation wasn't really feeling this super mean God anymore, and religious leaders showed great concern over their emptying churches. But then, just before the sun rose one morning in late October of 1727, citizens of the 13 colonies in the northeastern U.S. experienced a powerful earthquake that was described as having sent livestock running through the towns and leaving large cracks in the earth and in stone walls, crumbling chimneys while lightning struck in the distance. No one was killed, and all in all, truth be told, it actually wasn't that bad of an earthquake, maybe a 5 or a 6 on the Richter scale. But imagine for a second that you don't understand science at all. That scene is some scary-ass shit. Quite literally, the churches were immediately filled to the brim as preachers demanded an immediate rededication to God to avoid what they saw as a great punishment for their rising sins. And the people, terrified, were desperate to oblige. You are in now and happy state, with their hearts filled with love to him that has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. And then, just three years later, a spunky young preacher in his late 20s named John Edwards gave a landmark fire and brimstone sermon, certainly inspired by this revived fear of God's wrath, but with an exciting new twist. He spoke passionately not only of a terrifying God, but also for the potential of a personal and emotional relationship to Jesus Christ. 
Edwards radically denounced Calvinism, inspiring people to throw up their hands and weep and talk in tongues in wild revivals, believing for the first time that they had a fighting chance not to be burned in hell forever. They had personal agency. Imagine that suddenly. You have a kind of overwhelming relief and hope. Life suddenly has new meaning, a purposeful journey that you are in control of. Imagine if someone told you that God loved you. It must have felt incredible. But with this spiritual revolution came the sudden terror of choice, which seemed to untether people profoundly, the people that had previously needed the guidance of their preachers, who now seemed boring and old, who did not seem to hold God inside of them. Suddenly, it seemed that God had come down from that city on a hill, from that sky palace, creating a new space where there was a true holiness that you could literally walk beside. Maybe even Jesus himself, or in this case, herself. one of the first in our now overpopulated category of second comings of Christ, or as she explained, someone spiritually married to Christ, his other half, his female half. And she was a woman of visions and alleged superhuman powers, including the ability to physically travel into the realms of the dead and save people in purgatory with her new gospel. She was a Quaker, the other major sect of Protestants who held a far more progressive ideology than their Puritan counterparts, preaching equality for men and women and working for abolition. The ecstatic First Great Awakening we just talked about helped form Anne Lee's new community, a group that would come to be known as the Shakers for their shaking, their shouting, their speaking in tongues, for their new kind of unhinged relationship to God. Anne Lee began her life in Manchester, and she was in and out of what were then called insane asylums. After all four of her children died within weeks of their births from a marriage that she did not want but her father forced her into, she had her most serious mental breakdown and declared that she had had a series of visions, the first that Christ had returned inside of her, and then another of Adam and Eve boning down, which convinced her that sex was the root of all evil. And with the traumas she suffered, that makes a lot of sense. After those visions, she emerged vowing celibacy, and her husband was like, okay, and then became her first follower. She preached that heaven could be reached by anyone if they confess and renounce their sins, and then work to live a perfect sinless life as Jesus did. She was also obsessed with the apocalypse, preaching the same fire and brimstone end times as Edwards did, as well as the perfect potential love that one could receive from God. And then in 1774, Jesus Christ told Anne Lee, his spiritual wife, to come to America. 
In the new American cult of Anne Lee, it was promised that a conversion to Shakerism and her teachings could provide freedom from debt and illness. She made one of the earliest uses of the prosperity gospel that was later adopted by televangelists that we covered in our last episode. Along with the special prizes she offered, she also created a strong fear of hell and damnation in the apocalypse at the same time. Not known as a loving woman, Anne Lee was apt to hurl emotional insults at adults and children for the smallest of sins, encouraging pain and suffering as pathways to salvation. It was reported that she made adults and children crawl on their knees painfully in order to learn how to pray right. She was known for her alleged ability to be able to see the sins of others just by looking at them, and people were so terrified that they would, well, shake in her presence as she called them out harshly at first and then took them weeping into her arms to forgive them. Of course, it was deeply cathartic for people to be forgiven, and the bond that that creates is serious, making her followers easy to control. She made new guidelines to strongly encourage the complete celibacy of her growing followers as the best way to honor God, even within the bounds of marriage, which was convenient for her since she abhorred sex. The shaking, apparently, was also the sin of sex being shaken off like water from a dog. Regardless of the nuttiness and the control tactics of Anne Lee, At the time, it was outrageous that a woman might command such spiritual authority. It was revolutionary. A girl Jesus was one thing, but another emerging early cult leader would go a step further in their embodied claims of saviorism. From the strange recesses of a typhus fever dream, a fever so bad it allegedly killed 24-year-old Jemima Wilkinson, appeared a new being who possessed and then resurrected the body, a being who claimed to be without gender or with both genders, a being who wished to be referred to only as the public universal friend. The spirit rejected the use of pronouns and wore a mixture of masculine and feminine styles, responding to questions about their gender with, I am that I am. Same as hell. But like Anne Lee, the public universal friend was obsessed with the coming apocalypse, and they lucked out when an event similar to the great earthquake that happened 50 years before would increase the fellowship dramatically. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. When the dark day hit on May 18, 1780, the sun was entirely blocked out from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m., Three hours of absolute terror and apprehension that Judgment Day was nigh. There are now many scientific explanations for what happened on the dark day. But of course, no one knew what the hell was going on in 1780. 
The Friend, as their nickname became, had already been predicting the end times, which lent them a lot of legitimacy and then increased the community, with people desperate for a charismatic leader to provide them with a spiritual place to land. The Society of Universal Friends, as they came to be known, grew into the hundreds. Because prominent establishment Quakers denounced the Friends' quote, pride and ambition to distinguish themselves from the rest of mankind, the group set out to create their own new spiritual communist utopia. Angered by the Society of Universal Friends and their unorthodox practices, local authorities attempted to arrest the friend for blasphemy, but they were a skilled horse rider and mythically evaded capture. After their eventual arrest, the judge hearing the case cleared the charges and then invited the public universal friend to give a sermon right there in the courtroom. Talk about charisma. Eventually, their followers, many of whom were happily unmarried women looking for a refuge from gender oppression, adopted their androgynous style and chose to live a life of celibacy in a community of relative equality. The friend was also a fervent abolitionist and successfully encouraged slave owners to free the enslaved, and sometimes both parties ended up joining the movement. The Society of Public Universal Friends would disband after the death of their leader, but the progressive ideologies of this new religious movement would help set the course for the coming boom of a variety of new saviors presenting themselves all over the East Coast. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today. 
And now, back to the show. In the early 1800s, the Second Great Awakening took the personal relationship to Jesus and the potential for anyone to get into heaven as long as they had faith to the next level. One of the evolving ideologies sown by the First Great Awakening was known as Christian perfectionism, the assertion that a person could actually be free from sin for a lifetime like Jesus was. There was an even deeper interest in creating that heaven on earth as the Industrial Revolution created anxiety, almost of a doomsday variety, which inspired a far more radical Jesus-freak hippie back-to-the-land movement, the desire to leave capitalism and materialism behind. This personal salvation was beginning to transform even more so into a desire to change the world— It was about creating a world that Jesus would want to return to, about cleaning up the house for when Dad finally gets home from his 1800-year business trip. One of the most important leaders of this new generation was a nervous, freckled, and red-headed young man, obsessed with women and sex at a very young age, but convinced he was unattractive and undesirable while at the same time being totally preoccupied with sin and its potential cleansing. John Humphrey Noyce would take on these fringe ideas of perfectionism, and his friends and teachers thought his new ranting and raving was totally nuts. But he had a pretty easy way to deflect any and all questions about his words and actions, because, as he explained, he had surrendered his will to God and therefore was officially perfect with a, quote, perfect heart. So everything he did and said was officially divine. He offered a wildly unorthodox reality that Jesus had already returned in 70 AD and that it was up to them to bring about the kingdom of heaven that he had talked about through a communistic, sinless spiritual life. And conveniently, he was the only one who knew the way. Noyce also shared the progressive values of gender equality and abolitionism, placing women in positions of power and inviting free black people to join the congregation, eventually opening the first college to admit black students. Worried for the future of the soul of America, Noyce and several hundred other followers created a world apart, a new Zion that they called Oneida. The most controversial aspect of this group, however, was what Noyce called complex marriage. He considered intercourse to be spiritual in and of itself as long as it led to procreation, but he also spoke radically of sex as a social act between two consenting adults. Eventually, Oneida became, essentially, a commune of swingers that all lived in a big, weird sex mansion together. And each night, couples would go to a different room with a new partner to socially bond. But by the end of the night, everyone had to be back in their respective rooms. He called all of this free love, a now common term that Noise actually coined. But free love wasn't an option. It was the rule. And couples were barred from spending too much alone time together, since exclusive relationships were expressly forbidden. 
His brilliant idea to combat what he called the sexual starvation that marked his youth and marked many unhappy marriages was to have the young men learn a kind of self-control by having sex with postmenopausal women who could not get pregnant until these young men or sometimes teenage boys could learn essentially how not to ejaculate. Conveniently, Noyes and the other high-ranking members were some of the only people who were qualified to have sex with younger people because they had the skill to do so. Girls as young as 11 were initiated into sex by men in their 40s, with most of the virgins given to Noyes. A committee headed by him regulated and documented all sexual activity, and if marriages were not approved by him, they were shunned from the community. Eventually, Noyes began approving or not approving couples for one of the first eugenics experiments in American history, albeit one not based on race, but rather spiritual and morally superior genes. All the while, Noyes was raking in the cash, turning Oneida into a business that produced rustic garden furniture, palm frond hats, and silverware. But soon, the word of Noyes' sexual crimes would reach the public, and time would be up for Oneida as Noyes fled to Canada to avoid statutory rape charges, living out his days on the money provided by Oneida that he turned into a joint stock company in 1881 one of the first of its kind to allow members to become shareholders and also allow a woman to serve on the board of directors. And this company, called Oneida, still produces silverware to this very day. From bouillon spoons and cocktail forks to butter spreaders, Oneida is the perfect choice for supplying the best flatware for every venue. No matter your choice, you can rely on the long-lasting quality of Oneida flatware. Just down the lane, from the location of the commune, a young man was coming of age, no doubt hearing stories of Oneida. That's right, Mormon God-sanctioned prophet polygamist Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon Church of Latter-day Saints. But that's a story for another time. Instead, let's fast forward to 1907, in the middle of what has been called the Third Great Awakening, when the progressive movements harnessed Christianity into actual political power. In New York's Harlem, the new squire of Elbow is better known as Father Divine, whose thousands of followers loudly hail him as God on Earth. Father Divine became God to millions, both black and white. He was different from anything that you have ever come in contact with. To me, he's God, and he's God to the whole wide world, if people would just recognize it. A black preacher who named himself Reverend Major Jealous Divine was establishing his place as one of the first radio evangelical preachers, a five-foot-two prosperity gospel-obsessed, Rolls-Royce-driving, diamond-jewelry-wearing eccentric, whose background remains a mystery to this day. Likely the son of freed slaves, Father Divine would become one of the richest men in Harlem, always in a dapper suit with a perfect mustache and neat hair. He taught hundreds of thousands, likely even millions of people about the New Thought movement, 
that you could create your own wealth through honoring God. But soon, Father Divine would designate himself as the second coming of Christ and would enter into politics as a staunch capitalist, rejecting welfare and social programs that he believed would hurt the black community, pointing toward the prosperity that believing in God magically brings to the believers. But he respected and even worked with communist groups, impressed with their fiery dedication to civil rights. His followers became known as angels, with fans writing to Father Divine simply addressing their envelopes, God, Harlem, USA. He advocated for reparations for descendants of the enslaved, working also to integrate neighborhoods and public spaces. Under that influence, he would purchase hotels that he called Heavens, where he preached and provided food, shelter, and job opportunities. He ramped it up even more when he attempted to create a sustainable community in which each adherent got their own 100 by 100 foot lot to build a house on. Each person either worked to farm the land or worked in the local factories. Using money from rich white congregates that fell under his spell, the Peace Mission, as his group would come to be called, ran restaurants and clothing stores, making them the largest property owners in Harlem, with Father Divine always flush with what the public considered mystery cash, in part because his most dedicated followers were surrendering all their possessions to him. After he was arrested for invading the country with his religious practices, he was thrown in prison for letting white and black people live in the same houses together. But the judge on the case would mysteriously die of a heart attack three days later, with Father Divine telling a reporter, I hated to do it. When he got out of prison, they continued to recruit holding enormous Easter parades with thousands of angels marching together through the streets of New York, picking up new disciples right off the sidewalk. I decided, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? The thought was, infiltrate the church. All of this would become a model for a man whose name has become synonymous with the charismatic leader. A young door-to-door monkey salesman turned self-professed faith healer named Jim Jones arrived on the scene in the 1950s and became obsessed with Father Divine. Jones was impressed by Father Divine's ability to create millions of followers, and when the prolific spiritual leader died, Jones would actually stand in front of his congregation and declare himself the reincarnation of Father Divine. It didn't work, but regardless, Jones would use the style of Father Divine to recruit folks with his spiritual preaching and healing first, using the classic power of that emotion to then introduce them to the potential utopia heaven on earth of socialism. After leaving the United States hoping to seek a new communistic paradise, he modeled the People's Temple Commune in Guyana after Father Divine's properties. 
We know how this all ended up, with Jones as a vicious sexual and physical abuser, a paranoid and drug-addled fascist leader, the kind he set out to protest. The almost 1,000 followers of Jonestown who had become wholly dedicated to this cause of utopian equality through socialism were told that the fascist government was coming to imminently kill that dream. And so they must die for the cause, commit revolutionary suicide, or, in other words, die for him. As the civil rights decade was having its own kind of political great awakening, what we're going to call the fourth spiritual great awakening was happening at the same time. Not unlike the effect of the great earthquake and the dark day, Americans had just come out of the terror of World War II and were living under the constant threat of atomic bombs and nuclear war. At the very same time, the first rockets were exiting the atmosphere to enter the greatest of the great unknowns. The country had been growing more and more secular, far less interested in Christianity as a whole, and a new UFO religious philosophy would begin to mark many of the cults that were to come. But at the same time, these stories weren't all that different. There was still an idea that one had to perfect the self spiritually in order to be chosen to become the elect that would be lifted into a kind of celestial utopia. They could escape the anxiety of their modern world, the terror of war, escape the coming apocalypse. UFO sightings exploded in the 40s and 50s, leading people to actually call it a UFO hysteria. And alleged events like the flying saucer crash at Roswell piqued public interest and bolstered the genre of sci-fi. Along with the popularity of psychotherapy that would later inform leaders like Teal Swan, we see the beginnings of L. Ron Hubbard's Scientology and Dianetics, of course, with his bizarre self-help sci-fi religion that exploded across New Age Californian culture. But a lesser-known story is that of a 54-year-old suburban housewife living in rural Illinois that was inspired by her time studying Scientology. Dorothy Martin was an eccentric who subscribed to paranormal magazines and was a member of the local Flying Saucer Club. Martin began claiming that she had received messages from the distant planet Clarion, messages that flowed through her body and onto a pad of paper in automatic writing. She began speaking publicly, warning emphatically about the end times, a biblical-esque flood that would drown the entirety of the Earth and the UFO that was coming to save her followers. As the media began printing more and more stories about this strange group known as the Seekers, it caught the attention of psychologists at the University of Minnesota. Soon, a team of researchers arrived on Dorothy Martin's doorstep, convincing the group that they, too, were true believers, a.k.a. the friggin' dopest job I've ever 
Throughout November and early December of 1954, Dorothy Martin continued to make a series of predictions for the date and time of the alien rapture. At each given date, the seekers gathered together in Martin's backyard with all the metal removed from their bodies, as was the alien's instructions, and waited. Each time the rapture failed to occur, the researchers noted that instead of losing faith, the group would rationalize why the saucer did not arrive. They weren't spiritually ready, they weren't finished training, or they weren't disciplined enough, or someone forgot to take off their bra that had metal in the strap. That really happened. The researchers noticed that, oddly, with each failed prediction, the group actually strengthened their belief that the UFO was coming back soon. And when Martin received yet another message giving a new date, the group would gather once again, staring up at the night sky to no avail. By Christmas Eve, the Seekers gathered for the very last time, singing Christmas carols in the street. After that month of false rapture dates, all that disappointment, the Seekers slowly and begrudgingly gave up hope. That following year, the team of psychologists would publish the book When Prophecy Fails, a social and psychological study of a modern group that predicted the destruction of the world. Through studying Dorothy Martin and the Seekers, the researchers would actually coin the term cognitive dissonance to describe what they were seeing over and over again. They explained their theory that when someone experiences information that contradicts their strongly held beliefs, the personal discomfort of that is enormous. And so we'll do whatever it takes to resolve that contradiction, usually through rejecting the information or coming up with excuses, as the seekers did. The team concluded, quote, it may even be less painful to tolerate the dissonance than to discard the belief and admit that one had been wrong. You don't think there's any no. way Trump could have lost? No. Really? Yes. I believe that Donald Trump won the election. I believe that they tried to steal the election. It's legal for them to count votes in Pennsylvania two days after the election on November 3rd? Yes. You're wrong. Go. I don't even want to talk to you. I think it's fair to say that we're seeing a similar cognitive dissonance in this apparently apocalyptic 2020 election loss of Donald Trump, who's been compared to a messiah of a MAGA cult, as well as an authoritarian charismatic leader. It's true that he's continuing to assert with absolute certainty, as he always does with everything, that he is the real winner of the not-even-close election. His most ardent followers believe this wholeheartedly, fervently, viciously, despite the mountains of evidence to the contrary and the daily verdicts from state courts rejecting the outrageous conspiracy theories of mass voter fraud. He's seen as a spiritual hero endowed with special powers and charismatic televangelists like the ones we covered last episode still tout their classic versions of a saving gospel. But more and more, their charismatic leader, Jesus Christ, is turning into Donald Trump. 
he was supposed to win the election in a grand landslide, then reveal the secret satanic pedophile ring of elite Democrats that have long, apparently, been disenfranchising good American patriots. He was supposed to usher in a new, prosperous American utopia for them. As we know, Donald Trump actually lost in a landslide, but the cognitive dissonance is in full swing. With both a mirror-hungry leader and ideal-hungry followers to hold on to a reality that they've sunk their entire lives into. But as we know, that magical UFO ain't coming for anybody. More after this. And now, back to the show. Charismatic leaders in positions of political influence sometimes form what are called cults of personality, with their specific type of power attained through propaganda, self-aggrandizement, fear-mongering of outgroup scapegoats, and most importantly, the creation of an entire separate reality where they are the only source of truth, safety, prosperity, and heaven itself. Instead of looking forward to a transformative new utopia, authoritarian and fascist charismatic leaders hearken back to a mythic past, a time when the nation was great, when the in-group, as an extension of the leader, held all the power, you know, before the various out-groups and their civil rights ruined the soul of the country. They do this by promising the safety of law and order through reinstating proper traditions and through the promotion of long-term social hierarchies, but most importantly, through the total confidence they present. But in the most extreme cases, the values of the leader are always secondary to their ego and they all seem to share the same core personality traits and perhaps the same diagnosis. We hear this term all the time now, narcissistic personality disorder, especially in the last four years as the masses try to suss out the mental state of our commander-in-chief. Those who meet the criteria for NPD show long-term patterns of exaggerated self-importance, an excessive craving for admiration, have extreme difficulty feeling empathy for others, and most relevantly, have total confidence in their own perfection and the perfection of their ideas. More and more psychologists are talking about the fact that many who've achieved positions of power in politics and business likely fall on the spectrum of NPD because those with NPD are pathological leaders, in no small part because they have a powerful built-in shield against criticism referred to as mental toughness something that most of us do not possess. But of course, we've seen this magic trick of deflection again and again, writ large with this political administration, and many of us have experienced this with people in our own lives. They see themselves as beyond criticism, as innately superior to all others, and believe the rules don't apply to them. 
In their reality, there is no authority but their own. And since they're often blessed with an abundance of unbridled energy, they can be visionaries for the future, untethered by the norms of the establishment. Or they can be cruel exploiters of those they consider beneath them. Oftentimes, it's both. Political psychologist Gerald Post laid out his theory called the charismatic leader-follower relationship and a concept he called collective narcissism. The symbiotic relationship includes the mirror-hungry leader who needs constant outside admiration and the ideal-hungry followers who previously did not display notable traits of clinical narcissism. The leader gives the seekers a radical new reality to rely on, a sense of extreme confidence in a grandiose mission, a sense of purpose at a biblical level. Followers can then become dangerously righteous, violently dedicated to reinforcing the fantasy of the leader so they don't have to lose the reality they now depend on. Any person in need of a cause or in need of a belief structure can fall prey to a cult, a new religious movement, or a political cult of personality. They can attract people who feel disenfranchised by the powers that be, whether they be marginalized people in need of pathways to power or those who believe their birthright power to be slipping away, which we've seen play out over the last several years. We often view people who joined cults as weak, as more susceptible than us to being duped by a gross-as-fuck charlatan. But in actuality, the core weakness of the leader is far more powerful than those they manipulate. Psychologists talk about the narcissistic wound, that is, some kind of childhood trauma that sparks a psychological mechanism that protects them from whatever disempowered them originally. Obviously, far more people with childhood trauma do not end up as cult leaders, but for whatever reason, perhaps combination of nature and nurture, people with NPD subconsciously create robust personal fantasy worlds, sometimes entire new religions and political philosophies, to shield them from this original wound, this original shame. Think of Anne Lee's early sexual trauma or Humphrey Noyce's sense of sexual rejection, Jim Jones' abusive father, whatever actually happened to Teal Swan, and even Donald Trump's desperate and unending need for approval from his own narcissistic father. A father who believed the worst thing you could be was a loser. When a charismatic leader is disgraced or dies, the movement almost always fizzles out unless a new leader is chosen that has the same bounty of these charismatic qualities. But a process that sociologists refer to as routinization can sometimes occur if the group was influential enough. This means that their ideas seep into the culture at large, for better or for worse, sometimes even changing governmental policies. 
the beliefs will not be as extreme or strange as they were during the heyday of the group. Instead, expressed in more mild and socially acceptable ways. New religious movements and political cults have pushed hard for integration and gender equality, and they've even paved the way in some cases, whether we like it or not, toward a mainstream acceptance of civil rights. In the same way, though, after he is gone from office, the values of far-right Trumpism will live on in our politics and culture routinely. But Trumpism likely won't have the same shocking power it did before. After he is exposed as a non-superhero, as a regular mortal, and most importantly, as a loser, and the mass attraction to his unhinged confidence finally starts to crumble away. It's important to point out as well that charismatic leaders do not always use their power to create a cult. People like John F. Kennedy or Martin Luther King and even Barack Obama have been referred to as such. Their confident guidance can motivate major victories for society, encouraging the emotion it takes to energize the people. Many of these visionaries have what is referred to as healthy narcissism, a balancing force that adds vital humility to their uncommon strength of mind and output of work. But the difference is that their leadership always comes back to serving the ideals. We can think of more unorthodox leaders as well, like Black Panther Fred Hampton, who was able to bring together Black people and low-income white people and Latinx people in a rainbow coalition with the dream of total equality. And through his powerful charisma and dedication to the cause, through a kind of fearless confidence, he was able to mobilize the power of the people to truly help his community. When worship leaves the realm of ideals and goals and becomes focused on an individual who is endowed with supreme power to decide all rights and all wrongs, it's not going to end well. I am a seeker. Always have been. Spiritually, politically, psychologically, you name it. I've long been looking for a truth I'm never gonna find. And to be honest, I've been courted by cults of all stripes, probably because they've seen the sad, hopeful desperation in my ideal-hungry eyes. You can hear about my brush with a self-help cult-adjacent group in our Mind Control episode, but I also once went out by myself to a weird New Age church, bored on a Wednesday night looking for the weirdest thing I could do. Once inside, I saw a three-foot-tall alien floating in formaldehyde in a room filled with enormous crystals and glass cases, and a short southern dandy of a charismatic leader began talking close to me about astral projection, as if I didn't already know everything about it. We sat in a blood-red carpeted room on recycled movie theater seats, surrounded by paintings of all of the ascended masters, with this southern dandy preacher or whatever he's called telling us about babysitting his grandson by astral projecting his spirit from the living room lounge chair to the side of the baby's crib to check to make sure he's okay. The leader was 
totally confident in this teal swanian vision that he was presenting, and his ideal hungry followers certainly were too. He combined the powers of psychotherapy and New Age cosmology that have marked our recent new great secular awakening, where a million internet gurus and corporate CEO prophets like Nexium Toad Keith Raniere and slick self-help magnates can promise their new sanitized versions of utopia, pushing that egoless state of perfect bliss, not unlike the heavens within that create the heavens without that have been promised through the personal experience of God ever since that first earthquake terrified everyone. And John Edwards rocked America with his rejection of Calvinism, of predestination, and he blessed us with choice. Choice is empowering, certainly, but it's also terrifying. And so it makes sense that we'd look toward the most pathologically confident person that we can find. In this case, that southern dandy New Age preacher did not have the particular je ne sais quoi that marks the successful leaders we've talked about today, and his fellowship was sparse. But toward the end of the service, we all chanted together intensely, again and again. And at first I hated it, but then I started to feel a strange kind of power as we were calling to all the spiritual forces in the world to heal our souls and heal the soul of the earth. I got to admit, I felt something. I felt something big. I felt a lot. Something in me got tapped in that strange community because we were all together commanding the world to heal. We said those words again and again, and a part of me so badly wanted to believe. There have been times I have thought that thinking might kill me. The infinitude of choice becoming overwhelming, my hunger to find the ideals of a grand mission clouding my own reality, my own sanity. It's so tempting, I think, to move towards something certain. Doesn't it sound nice to no longer be trapped in all those complications inside of you? To have a definite truth a definite answer to life's most terrifying questions. To be told that you're one of the good ones who knows the path to a perfect world. I understand that very human need to be saved. But, and you know I hate to say it, that UFO ain't coming for anybody. The magic doesn't come from some all-powerful being but instead from the miracle of choice and the strength it takes to find our own confidence, to face the unknown ourselves, to change the world in our own small and humble way with that vital hunger to create our own ideals. Because without followers, the constant flattering mirror provided to narcissistic leaders loses its fantastical glow. What if you thought you were God? 
And then suddenly, you found out you weren't. What if, at the end of all of it, you were left with only one definitive truth? That what you really are is a loser. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we're talking to podcast royalty, the host of Snap Judgment, Spooked, and the Heaven's Gate podcast, Glenn Washington, who will share his experience growing up in a Christian cult. After that, we're going to be taking some time off for Christmas, but then we'll be back to cover a topic I'm very excited about trash talk shows. In case you missed it last week, I put up an episode called Walk With Me, which will be a new patrons-only podcast where you come on a walk with me and we talk about everything from philosophy to meditation to all the types of things that we don't cover on this show in hopes that we can come back into ourselves a little bit and we can experience the world in a different kind of way. We're calling it guided meditation for people who hate guided meditations. And I promise to keep it down to earth, not too weird, and always sarcastic. But at the same time, I am going to wax poetic about the beauty of the world. If that sounds good to you, consider becoming a patron. You can find the link in our show notes, and you'll get lots of other great content every month please consider following us on social media at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram and at Amer Hysteria on Twitter. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by your very own charismatic leader, Chelsea Weber-Smith, who hopefully contains a little bit of humility along with their narcissism. We have sound design by Clear Como Studios, co-writing and co-research by Riley Smith, and production and editing by Miranda Zickler. I love them so much, and I don't know what I would do without them. Thanks, as always, for listening. And in the middle of this second lockdown, may you find your own version of astral projection so you can go and check on everyone that you love. Have a great week.